inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. And we're two siblings who happen to be blind. Outlook. Radio Western. Morning, everyone. Hello. How's everyone doing today? Kind of rainy out here uh, in Ontario, London, Ontario, where we broadcast the show from. We're back live in studio. Welcome to another episode of Outlook. Yes. And Care, guess what? I, I believe our guest is uh, is showing up here on Zoom now, so I think we got everything sorted here last minute, so huh. should be good. Okay. I see. You weren't uh, sure there for a minute. Yeah, it's a... Uh, the fun of uh, booking guests and doing live radio it's uh i love the spontaneity of the, of it all but sometimes it can create a little bit of uh stress or <laughs> last minute sort of uh, rushing around to get things sorted but i think we got everything going going well here so can you hear us yes H- hannah hannah levitt thanks so much for coming on outlook today hey you're welcome thank you for asking me great can hear you good can you hear us Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, just just a little problem with the Zoom link. So just a wee adrenaline rush for you both. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good way to get us motivated for the Monday, a Monday morning. It's- yes. Yeah, right. get us on our toes right at the start of the week here. And I think we can all relate in some, some way to this Zoom stuff the last few years, having issues and sorting it out and learning as we go along. So Right. Right. So we were saying it's rainy here. And uh, where are you and what's it like there? I am in lovely Victoria, BC on Vancouver Island and it's sunny, but it's not, it's not a summer day by any stretch. It's, let's say it's sunny, but it's not raining yet. <laughs> it's been, it's been drizzly most of the week here. So. Yeah, but Vancouver Island, lovely out there. Yeah. I've been there a few times over the last few years here. So it's a definitely a nice. Yeah. Most times. Yeah. Most times it's a great place to live. Yeah. Yeah. But I know it can be can be a little dreary sometimes. Or just there's obviously uh, quite a bit of rain, especially these days in the news with uh, with all this flooding and stuff going on in different areas too, which is a whole other. Yeah, thing. I'm. Yeah, Victoria is quite. Um, Nanaimo is another main city on Vancouver Island here, and on um, on the map they're kind of at the same latitude. Vancouver, I should say Vancouver and Nanaimo are at the same latitude, so they both get a fair amount of rain. But Victoria, we're actually south of the 49th here. We, we're actually um, south of the 49th parallel, so we, we're actually quite a lot drier than uh, Vancouver and Nanaimo are, so mm-hmm. yeah, a lot Vic- less rain. Yeah, Vic- you know, Victoria is a nice place. Um, so have you lived there all your life, or have you lived elsewhere? No, I I grew up in the Fraser Valley, um, which is about an hour and a half, two hours uh, outside of Vancouver. And when I grew up there, like it was predominantly a farming community and that's where all the floods were happening Mm -hmm. last year. And uh, we didn't have a farm or anything, but we lived out in the country. So so did we. Yeah. So we actually had a. We actually had um, somebody that you work with or you've been working with on the Triple Vision podcast, which we're going to get into a bit later, by the name of Peter Field last year. And that was actually right when there was some flooding uh, pretty nearby where he was and yeah. was having some reception issues. And we couldn't, uh, we had to actually postpone the episode last minute because he just we couldn't get reception. And so definitely. That's yes. right. I, for, I forgot about that. Yeah, he, he moved up there. Uh, when my husband and I moved to Victoria, um, the first winter we had here was the blizzard of the century when there was like four feet of snow in Victoria. And then poor Peter moves, uh, you know, to the Hope area. And uh, his first uh, spring up there was just nonstop flooding. So, yeah, it's fun when you move to a new area expecting, you know. Yeah. You know, that, that you finally found your, your place to live where you belong and the nice climate and everything. And all of a sudden you get bombarded with Mother Nature, right? <laughs> Hope I made the right choice coming here. Yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. So I think we we first sort of came in contact with you. Um, you and David Best is his name. Yes, that's right, David Best. Yeah, yes. I think we spoke with you uh, when you were prep 
preparing the Triple Vision podcast. I think you were getting material together and just planning things out. Uh, So we got to speak with the two of you the one day. Um, But I've enjoyed listening to the podcast since then, and uh, you guys do a great job. I was just telling Peter the other day, I was listening to your three-parter on um, advocacy in the last century. Yeah, I've been listening to that as well, and definitely a Triple Vision podcast. Everyone should look it up. It's it's so important to, to listen to because, Carrie, in the past on this show, actually, and Hannah, I'm not sure you've you've heard of her, we had on back in 2020 the blind history lady. Uh, her name is Peggy Chung, but she's from the United States, and it was a really great episode. She definitely spent so much time researching history of blindness, but, you know, specific to the United States, and I think history in Canada especially when it pertains to disability and blindness and specifically, we just really don't know much about, we, we, we're not really all aware of it. A lot of it just isn't talked about. So I think you refer to yourself as, as a historian in in, uh, in many ways. And I think it's so great that, that you, uh, you are working with the team there to, to create this Triple Vision podcast to look at the past, present and future of blindness here in Canada, because it's just something that as blind people, we don't all know and we really should know. Yeah, I I used to work uh, for the local school board here, working with kids with vision loss in the classroom. And I remember talking to a a student that was in grade 12 at the time. And she, when I mentioned that I'd been to a school for the blind, she was astonished. She had no idea there were, had, were, or had ever been schools for the blind. And, And she was like a 17 year old young visually impaired woman going out in the world and had no idea of what had gone before her in terms of her education right so i i I was shocked by that and and i guess little by little i just started reading more and more about um about disability and and you know society and history and and it's been it's been an interesting journey for sure yeah, and to understand where we are now, it, it's so helpful to know where we came for that and who did what to bring us to this point. And it, yeah, it's sad if people don't realize. And, you know, we grew up here in Ontario, not too far from a school from the blind, even though we didn't attend it. And we had friends who went there. And so, you know, even though integration was sort of the common thing by the time we got to school in the 80s, in the, in the 90s mostly, um, you know, we'd still were aware of these schools and uh, but I didn't know as much about the one out west uh, the one out west there uh, until we talked to a few people who went there and uh, yeah but there's one in the, on the east coast um, so it's really interesting yeah there's two in Quebec and uh, yeah the Halifax school Ontario and then the, the Vancouver school mm-hmm. that's closed now but um, a, a few years ago when I was doing a lot of reading for my last book I came across a book by a fellow named Andrew Solomon, and it was called Far From the Tree, mm-hmm. and it was all about disability and um, and parents and kids and everything. But the interesting um, thing I, I kind of learned from there that got me on this history thing was, he said, you know, when you're born into a family, you know, you're, you, you automatically have this place on your family tree, right? And people say, oh, she looks like aunt so-and-so or he looks like uncle so-and-so or grandma or grandpa and and they all look back to this tree and and you find people who are like you in your family right and he says but when you have a disabled child or if you are the disabled child um there's no one on that family tree that's like you in most likely there's no one on that family tree who's like you and so he called his his book far from the tree because you don't kind of fit in with the tr- you know in the tree model any anymore right and and that really resonated with me that that imagery of of falling far from the tree and and you know you just it just got me curious and reading about why why is that you know why do we fall far from the tree and and uh and i mean i think part of this uh sort of research reading journey of mine has been to kind of um maybe find a different kind of family tree for myself you know and mm-hmm. and and sort of develop my own family story my family stories but they're they're not bloodline stories they're more cultural stories like community stories of blind people so and yeah, i think that's yeah. a really interesting that thing that came up in the uh, in the recent episodes about advocacy here in canada when you um on the the second last one you interviewed um, John Ray who unfortunately we also had on Outlook uh, a few months ago here just just before he passed on and 
really, really sad, but we were happy at least to have his voice on Outlook when, when we still could. And I'm sure you you all at uh, Triple Vision were the, feel, felt the same, and he was also on the team, the Triple Vision podcast team. But he talked a lot about this community thing, about how, you know, back in the day, maybe more before with these schools for the blind and stuff, we would build more of a community with, with blind people. Whereas now we are all so individual and we have technology, which is a great thing. But sometimes we focus so much on, on our individual experience. It's hard sometimes I think to, uh, for us to grow our, a community um, of blind people. I know when you go to school with people and you actually live in the school with them, I mean, they become your, your family of, you know, of a kind really. And and I mean, you, you spend every day with them and you spend evenings with them and weekends, lots of the time. And and your your memories of childhood are about that time in your life, right? And it's, yeah, you, you, build, you definitely build lifelong connections with people. I don't keep in touch with everybody that I knew when I went to Jericho, but I do know quite a number of people that I can call on any time. You know, it's, it is, it's sort of an instant community. Mm-hmm. And and we do lose that with integration because I know when I worked for the school board here once a year, um, we would have a, a district-wide uh, sports day, sort of a recreational day. And all the ki- different uh, ki- kids from different schools that were vision impaired would c- attend the sports day. And, uh, and that was the only time they ever got to meet other blind kids, you know, in a formal way and, and have a fun day with them. So it's, it's, yeah, we definitely, you, you gain and you lose something, yeah. you know, with every model that you try, right? Everybody's trying to do their best, but nobody's found quite it, the right one yet. And it is because we all come from such different experiences. It's easy to say, oh, you know, integration is the best method because it, it integrates us all into society. But the problem is we just don't have the supports in, in so many areas with school boards and, and the, the teachers available to teach these blindness skills in, in, uh, in full as, as well as they could in integrated situations. There's just so many factors that make these things and, and not everyone thrives in that situation. You know, for, for me, integration was great for the most part. I mean, you bring up the sports day. That was the big thing. I think in the earlier grades, I was in, in phys ed a bit, but as I got older, I kind of didn't really go to it as much because I just didn't feel as included and couldn't quite, you know, they just didn't have the support there. But I thought it'd be kind of nice if you could go back now and just tell us a little bit about your early life growing up and your, your cause of blindness and sort of what those years were like for you growing up and how blindness was back then and maybe how that compares to today. Well, way, way, way back in the day when I was a child, um, I was um, in the early 60s and mid 60s, late 60s. Um, I was born with full sight and I was uh, I was fine till about grade two. And then I started having headaches and uh, seizures and things. And they thought I had epilepsy and they put me on medication for it, but it didn't help at all. And um and then by the time I was in grade six, over a four-year period of time, I was losing my vision. And I didn't really notice it until grade six when I went to school in the fall for a new school year. And I couldn't read the blackboard anymore, even though I sat like as close to the front as I could. And then, um, and that started the whole ophthalmologist routine. And, and, and it was actually an ophthalmologist who found um, a brain tumor uh, just through an eye exam, actually, which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. It, that's how big it was. It was an ophthalmologist could actually see it. And um, yeah, and so I went, yeah, I had the, the tumor was removed, but the damage to my optic nerves was was permanent. So I'm, I'm totally blind in my right eye and I have sort of um, sort of shadowy, you know, vision in my left. I can read a little tiny bit, like with a magnifying, really strong magnifying glass. I mean, when I say read, I just mean I can look at a price tag and make it out, but I can't read, read with the vision I have. So I'm a braille user. I'm a, a, a screen reader user and um, I love braille. I, you know, technology is challenging at times, but um, I definitely embrace it. It's, it's made a big difference in life. When I went through school, we had none of we didn't have it. I mean, typewriter was the biggest technology I had and cassette tapes. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I, my books were in audio if, if they came and uh, if they were available 
And uh, I had a really, I didn't know it at that. You know, when you're a kid, you don't know all the work people are doing on your behalf and, and uh, you just, things just show up and you just think that's how the world works <laughs> when you're a kid. Yeah. But I, I know in high school, the, the school librarian, um, I found out later, posted a lot of, uh, of notices asking for volunteer readers. So a lot of my material was read by fellow students, which was really, really amazing at the time. You know, it was so nice of her to take that on. And um, yeah, so I, I, I went through to grade 12. I, I went to, actually, I, should, I skipped over Jericho. Um, I went to, after I had my surgery and everything, um, and the doctors told my parents that I was like legally blind, um, I went, I was scheduled to go off to Jericho school and I lived there and went to school there for two years. And by then it was the early 70s and the school was actually kind of winding down. It was already, you know, it had already started integrating kids into regular school. So there really wasn't much of a curriculum there anymore. And I, I could see it. I mean, I was a good student and I, I knew I wasn't learning anything. And uh, so I, uh, I went back to school for grades nine through 12 uh, to regular high school. But um, I, Jericho was wonderful for making friends and being around people uh, that were visually impaired and just me understanding because I mean, I, I was a fully sighted kid till I was, uh, you know, 10 years old. I didn't know anything about blindness or blind kids or anything. So Jericho was a really good uh, education for me on blindness. And uh, yeah, and because and it wasn't, you know, going to regular school for high school was, um, you know, like I say, academically, it, it was challenging, but socially, you know, it, it was, it wasn't fun. You know, there weren't a lot, we lived out of town. So, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't join anything in the evenings, any kind of extracurricular activities, because mm-hmm. I wouldn't expect my parents to drive in and out of town for that. But, um, you know, it, it was, it was more, it was definitely a lonelier time, you know, for sure. Hmm. Yeah. And no, that's the it. I think, we all have such different experiences. I, you know, I just, I consider myself lucky that I had such a great experience integrated and, and really did meet a lot of sighted friends. And, you know, I look back on it and now I've the last few years connecting more to the blindness community. I'm, I'm happy to meet some more blind people, but I've never really thought about it up until more recently where it's like, you know what, I should, I really would like to connect with more blind people and, and start to start because you can relate on certain things. And obviously we're very different, all of us, even though we have blindness in common, there's many other differences, but I just think it's, it's interesting how, and I think that can work for anyone, right? Anyone can either be, can sort of luck out and meet a lot of people in school and others don't, whether you're sighted or not, but it definitely brings in a barrier. And I think it definitely makes, can make it harder for a lot of people to adjust. And I don't know, it's a, it's an interesting thing, Kara. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I mean, all that is what you said there is true, Brian. I, I just really relate in certain ways with you, Hannah, because it sounds like your, you know, your school years were interrupted by a lot of medical things and by, yes. it took, you know, you don't always understand right away what's going on. And I had a lot of that myself that was, it just sort of interrupted my school experience. Um, and I, I read somewhere that you felt like some kids thought you were faking a lot of your, you know, symptoms yeah, sometimes. And yeah, that's a hard thing to, to, you know, as a kid to have people say, uh, you know, accuse you of faking yeah. it for, att- I got that, like the, that I was uh-huh. faking my illness for attention. And cause I was in the hospital, I missed a lot of school. Yeah. Um, and that's such a good, years. that's such a big part, I think. And that's Carrie, where I, I sort of lucked out that Carrie being the, the older sister here and we're obviously the unique situation of two siblings being blind, which is also not obviously overly common. Um, but like Carrie kind of went through a lot of this, the kidney failure and the other things that we deal with along with our blindness before me. So I didn't really miss much school. And I think that actually is a big part. You talked about going to Jericho, the, the school for the blind there for a couple of years and then going back to the, so you're kind of going back and forth from school to school and, and then all the medical stuff coming in, coming in and out of school. I think that really throws it off too, for sure. Yeah, I mean, mine mine wasn't uh, a brain tumor and all this stuff. Mine was kidney failure, and then it became you know scoliosis and chronic pain. But it's just the same sort of it. It sort of colors your experiences, and it just it's so disruptive. Yeah, it definitely is disruptive. I mean, I met I met a ton of people along the way, and 
you know, in hospital. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I've had friends that I met in hospital, but I've had all my life, you know, and, you know, so I, I kind of, when I look back on my life, I always think of it as I kind of pick up a friend or two with every experience. So I have this whole retinue of people in my life now <laughs> from, you know, Jericho, from being a sick kid in the hospital a lot and, you know, living different, working in different jobs and things. So, mm-hmm. you know, they all kind of represent a time in my life, but, um, but yeah, that continual interruption and not having um, like even ties at home so much. I don't know how you were, Carrie, but you know, I was in the hospital a lot. And when I had my brain tumor, I was in there for three months. And, and then afterwards I had to have radiations. So I had to stay there for that. And, you know, I, I, I just was out of touch with, with my community, but also with my family, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, my family is more my friends and, and, uh, community people nowadays I don't mm. I don't think my family ever really uh, understood either right so mm. my siblings I should say really you know I mean they tried I lived with them but not for a, a, you know a long time right so yeah I mean uh, I like to bring I'm bringing it up only to point out what decade we're talking here but I bring it up because I find it fascinating I, um, just like what was medical what was, you know, medical treatments, what were they like, you know, in the 60s versus the 90s or something, right? Because it was, you know, you know, it was different. It's like how you had tapes and a typewriter and we, you know, we had Braille and Speaks and we had, you know, it's like, so it's different. So I just like to ask people if they've gone through things in their life like you did, um, what it was like to go through that then, because I I always think if Brian and I had been born a couple decades earlier and we would have had kidney failure there was no dialysis before like the 70s right so you know it's it just depends on you it's the luck of the draw when 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 you're born yeah Yeah, where you get dropped into this world yeah or when you get dropped into this world yeah it's um yeah yeah it is very different i mean um you know my husband had um was born with cancer of the retina and um you know he lost his vision completely from that and uh nowadays they have a test they can do genetic testing and if they know if they can see you're going to be born with that condition they can actually do something um and you do not lose your sight you do retinal blastoma is is terrible for being known to come back later in life you don't get away from the cancer it kind of just goes into a really long remission but at least nowadays they can save your eyesight so you can at least go through your childhood and teens and 20s with uh, with vision, right? So, yeah, there's a lot of changes. Yeah, everything changes so so fast, even, you know, the past 25 years or so with the internet coming in and really being such a focus now. It's so different. And, and I think you, you touch on the, the family there, and I think that's such an important thing that we also like to mention on this show all the time is support and it's such an important part of everything and and some people just you know it, like you say it's what we're born into and it's not we, it's not our choice and generally it's the people it's the people who you know who raise us and stuff it's they come from obviously other situations so it's not simple for everyone and not everyone gets the same support and without support and or having a, a good amount of support it it's makes it even more difficult uh, in the world to to get to get by with with a disability so it's it's just another another thing that i think sometimes when we try to think of a solution and say oh we should all be doing this or that we got to realize that we all come from such different backgrounds that it's it's not going to be the same same for for everyone yeah my parents uh came over to canada after the second world war and i didn't you know, when I graduated, just before, about the time I was graduating from high school, we lived out in the country and my mother assumed that I was going to be staying at home and living at home forever, basically, right? That wasn't my plan at all, but that was what she expected. And 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 then I found out that an aunt of mine in Winnipeg, that she'd asked an aunt of mine in Winnipeg to contact the CNIB about getting me an apartment there at the CNIB. And I didn't know what she was talking about. And it wasn't until I started doing my research that I realized that at the time my mom came to Canada and she did stop in Winnipeg um, before she came out to BC. She lived in Winnipeg for a while with my aunt there. And um, at that time, CNIB was opening up, they were building and opening up special residences just for blind people. 
and and there was there were a number of them across Canada actually. So you know, if you were blind, you could go live there. And and I thought, well, because I always wondered where would my mother get such an idea? You know, she she's she was basically uh, you know illiterate with English, but I mean, she knew her language. But um, you know, I, I couldn't understand why why she would raise this daughter that was intelligent and active and social, and then expect me to go live in some place you know, for blind people. But when I was reading, that's that's the time that the CNIB, when she was in Winnipeg, you know, I, I sort of thought, well, maybe, you know, at, at that time when they were opening these residences up, maybe that news was in the paper or something, you know, she came across it somehow. And, and in her, you know, immigrant mind thought, oh, I guess that's what happens to blind people in Canada is they live, you know, in these residences designed for blind people and uh you know so like uh, you know my parents wanted the best for me but that if that's what they saw and assumed about canadian you know canadians with blindness you know i I can understand now why why she might have thought that but at the time you know as a teenager i was kind of insulted by it i was like hey (laughs) i'm not gonna go live in an institution somewhere so yeah, yeah, it's really, I mean, like everybody in your family does their best, but I mean, they're yeah, all they individuals. Do. They're all just individuals with different experiences too. And how, how are they supposed to know about it, right? Exactly. And you we, know? you know, we got to always remember that the time period that things happened in. And of course, it's not to excuse certain behaviors or, and, or anything like that, but it's also to realize where they came from and that, and, that, and that it was a different time. And we can't totally relate things from now to back then because things were different. So for anyone who's been listening today or who has maybe just tuned in, we're speaking today with... Hannah Levitt. She is a blindness historian, also author. We haven't even gotten into this. I think we're going to talk, <laughs> talk about this for sure in the second half. We're going to take mm. a break here in a minute. Author of the book, The Disability Experience, Working Towards Belonging. You also have your BA and a master's in writing from the University of Victoria. And you also deliver disability awareness workshops to healthcare and education professionals. So we are actually going to take a quick break here now on Outlook. And we'll be back after these ads. Yes, with more of today's program. Outlook. On Radio Western. Oh, sorry, we're back. Sorry, the ad thing keeps screwing me up in the middle there. <laughs> you're, you're listening to Outlook live on a Monday morning here in May. And we are talking with Hannah Levitt who has a the, her she has a book out it's been out for about a year so we want to talk about that here in the second half but before the break we were talking about you know growing up in whatever time period we did what what our families thought our futures might be and what they understood about blindness and what we came to understand ourselves and a bit about how you became blind yourself um I do like how you were talking before the break about that uh, book you re- referred to cuz I think that was one my sister read and it did make me think about this this past weekend, actually, I just took a course on uh, uh, your ancestors and connecting with ancestors and, and the instructor wanted everybody to feel welcome. So if there were people whose family was sort of all over the place or, or not, you know, in the, on the best of terms or they were adopted, she wanted them to feel comfortable too. So it wasn't all about like people you were related to. It could be anybody that you felt was part of your community or your history or you were connected to. And it just made me think about all that. And um, like you said, Hannah, uh, Brian and I were the first in our family to be born with this, this syndrome that included the blindness we have. And so blindness didn't run in our family. You know, these are things that it, they come along and show up in us, uh, you know, genetically and nobody was expecting it. And then we're the first to deal with it. And luckily Brian and I have each other, but um, yeah, it's, we had a great conversation so far. So we want to talk about your book in the second half here. Um, do you want to tell us how that came about? Sure. Um, after I finished at the University of Victoria here and got my master's, I was kind of floundering a little bit about what to do. And, and um, you know, you hear all these stories about writers submit, submitting, you know, query letter after query letter after query letter, trying to get their their ideas, you know, sell their ideas to a publisher and everything, but that's not my story at all. (laughs) I got a call one day from the local publishing company here, Orca 
Orca Publishing and uh, asking me if I would write this book about disability. And it, it all came about because of connections with my, uh, with uh, Dean of Fine Arts at the university. She knew the, the gal at the, the woman at the publishing house and the woman at the publishing house said, do you know anybody that could write a book about disability? And, and my, uh, uh, the gal at the university said, absolutely, call Hannah. So, um, yeah, that's how, that's how, how it started. It was that simple. And, and the publisher, I got to give them a lot of credit. You know, they had somebody on staff there with, uh, that had an autistic son and they asked him if he would write about it. And he, he said, no, absolutely not. You have to have somebody write about it. Who's had the lived experience. Oh. So they, they were really happy to find me, you know, a writer and somebody with a disability. So, yeah. So I, um, uh, yeah, I wrote the book, uh, The Disability Experience, and it, it's kind of a primer on disability for people who don't know anything about disability. Um, it's kind of like everything you wanted to know but were afraid to ask kind of a book. So it talks about, um, you know, the history and attitudes towards blindness throughout time. It talks about the actual physical, like medical uh, qualifications. I shouldn't call qualifications, actually, the criteria that you have to be deemed whatever disability, whether you're a C7 quad or a, you know, a legally blind person or a deaf person, you know, or cognitively challenged. Um, yeah, it, it, it discussed like the sensory disabilities, deafness and blindness, physical disabilities, and also cognitive disabilities. And so it, it, it talked about, you know, education, you know, how, how people are educated that have disabilities these days. What is their, you know, what, what kind of recreation do we do? What kind of advocacy was a big section, of course, because we all need to advocate and and recreation. Um, you know, just a little of uh, uh, even things like marriage and like do do people with disabilities get married and have children? Sure, they do. But you know, until you sort of blatantly say it, that obviously people probably are scared to ask or don't think about it, right? So I profiled a whole bunch of people in the book who you know had who met those sort of different criteria about having families and living with a disability and everything. And it was, I, you know, at the time it was just stuff I knew because I've grown up in this world. And um, honestly, I, I just thought, oh, well, I'll, the book will get published and that'll be that. But the book was released last April and it's gone into its second printing. And it's, um, it's, it's just been a really big hit. It's, it's won a number of awards and been shortlisted for some international, recently was just shortlisted for some international um, award for disability literature. So it, it's, it's just astounded me, but I think, I think the time is right. You know, so many people and organizations and groups are finding their voice right now. And I think, you know, this whole time of diversity and finding voice is, is just been the right time for that book. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've had a, a, you know, an instructor from some college in Chicago. She's using it for her class because um, she does a, a, she does a writing class, but she, the theme of her writing classes is disability. So she basically forces her students to research disability and write about it. And so she, she was thrilled to see my book because it was, like I say, it's kind of a primer on disability. Well, so. this, this book is, was it for ages 12 and up kind of thing? So why readers? This, this one is it's a it's a YA a young adult yeah. book, and but it's sort of geared toward the late teens. Mm -hmm. Okay, it, it doesn't read like a a kids book at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's you know it, it's um it's light reading, but it's really informative. It's not it's not sort of written in in a different way. It, you know, an adult can pick it up and would never know it's it's a young adult book. Well, but it, it reminds me of like in school. I used to do some talks at schools and the things that sounds like you cover in that book, like you said, questions that people are often afraid to ask. And then sometimes people with disabilities don't, you know, depending on what they're doing in their daily life, they don't want to be approached anyway. It's, it's so hard, right, to know. But it's the kind of thing that when I would speak at these classes, you know, kids ask a lot of interesting things that adults don't. And even teenagers, going from kids to teenagers, you find a different sort of... Um, willingness or comfort to ask things. But by, by the time te kids are teenagers, they often 
are told the world tells them, you know, it's it's not it's rude or don't stare and all this stuff. So it sounds like it's great. And yeah, you're right. I mean, more schools and universities have disability studies courses, and so a book like this is a good way to introduce. You know, young people to all kinds of disabilities and a bunch of things they wouldn't ask, maybe or just don't even know that are obvious to us, obviously. And then hopefully that takes them into their their you know more education that they do after high school or whatever, and that maybe some of them continue to study it. But it's great to hear that it's getting picked up, and you never know who comes across it. That that's the interesting thing. I'll, you know, I'll get a note from you know a friend in in Ontario or something. Say, oh, my friend just loaned me from Nova Scotia. She just saw your book in the bookstore and got it, and and uh, they you know they knew who I was through my friend, right? And uh, yeah, it's just it's it's interesting to see how it gets picked up and how people hear about it. It's quite fascinating. Um, but um, just actually. Last week, I just signed a, another contract with the same publisher, with Orca Publishing, to do um, another book, but this one for the nine to twelve-year-olds okay. on disability. So that's more so the that's age the, I was saying there. Yeah, 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 yeah. This the second book is going to be uh, more for the nine to twelve. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to that one. And this, when we were talking before about culture and 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 knowing our history. Um, Last fall, I applied for a BC Arts Council grant and I received a generous um, grant um, at the end of January. I found out about it. Oh, and my proposal, yeah. I Congrats. know, I was Great. really, yeah. I was thrilled. My, my proposal was to do a history of schools for the blind in Canada because when I wrote my other book, you know, when I was, you know, trying to research about other schools, the information was just all scattered and, you know, it, mm -hmm. I couldn't find a comprehensive, I could find lots of memoirs from former students of schools, but I, I it was hard to find um, information about the schools. So I proposed doing a collection of stories about the different schools in Canada and their histories. So that's, again, it's just right in that history, uh, that place of history that I, I kind of like to be at. And actually last week I was in Montreal for the first leg of that research and went and um, visited with students and staff and went to the school, uh, the Montreal Association for the Blind in Montreal. And that was really, really interesting. So yeah, so it's it's been a fun trip. It's really opened up a lot of you know, other doors. And, you know, after the book, it was, you know, finding about the, out about the Triple Vision group and getting involved in their podcast. So it's been a, it's been a fun adventure for sure. Yeah. One thing. And it's always, yeah. It is always, it's always so good to be able to, to work and to know that, you know, what you're doing has energy and, and you just hope it, it's, 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 you know, that people are hearing, hearing the message and, and uh, that maybe each day you're maybe changing one person's mind, you know, or helping them to understand better, you know, what it means, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, we all want, as people with disabilities, and we've all faced discrimination of all kinds at different times in our lives. I mean, you just, my, I don't, you can't sort of legislate awareness, no. but, you know, my attitude is always being, you know, well, if I can change one person's, outlook each day I'll, I'll be happy with that because the thought of trying to fix the world is overwhelming <laughs> and I think that's where a lot of people do just get too overwhelmed and they almost we almost didn't I think you know I know I'm definitely guilty of this and you know the last five years really connecting more with blindness community but it is so much it is so overwhelming sometimes that sometimes it's like oh I just want to do my own life and not really work on this stuff but th I think the point is we don't all have to go in head first all the time but if we all put some sort of effort or at least when we can obviously it's important to figure out our own lives and take care of ourselves too but if we can all put in something whether it be write a book do a radio show just even go out in the community you know just anything that even just for us doing this show is is blind people hosting a live radio show in a studio operating the console here like all of these things that the more we see it in society, I think the more accepted it will be. And I also really liked how your book is called, it's the disability experience. So isn't just, it's not just about blindness, it's about other disabilities. And I think that's something on this show, we started out with a focus on blindness, of course, and that's still our primary focus as we're blind siblings here, but we really do want to branch out into other disabilities. And I think that's why sometimes we feel like, and it is getting better now with diversity and everything being talked about more, but disability still gets kind of left out or is, isn't talked about enough. And I think a part of that is because 
we all do have such different experiences and one disability is so different than the other. And then even just because it's one disability, you know, sometimes that assumption is still out there. Oh, you're blind. You must do things the same way other blind people do. And really, of course, we're all individuals and do things differently. So I just really like how your book encompasses all of that. And, uh, and it's the disability experience and also touching on the younger age groups, because I do think that's so important. We've been talking about a book on this show a lot. Their plant eyes, a personal and cultural history of blindness that came out of the States recently. Um, which is a fantastic book, but it really, it's it's a little bit more academic. So while I think it's a great book, I don't know if it would maybe as easily connect with, you know, maybe younger readers or people that aren't in for such a more of a academic kind of thing. So I think your your approach is also uh, really, really great in this, in this situation. I'm more of a, my writing is, I mean, I, I actually downloaded that, that plant house book as well. And, um, you know, as a, a university graduate too. I mean, I recognize the academic nature of it right away, but yeah, it's not quite, I'm a more of a chatty writer. I'm It's like, people always say, oh, it's like you're sitting in the room with me kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so my writing is pretty accessible. And, uh, but you know, when you were talking about changing people's minds or changing people's outlooks about blindness, um, my a high school friend of mine, my one high school friend from all those years ago that I still keep in touch with, she has a granddaughter now who's a year and a half. And I buy her, I buy that little girl print to braille books from the National Braille Press. And because I want that little girl to grow, and the parents are thrilled about it, because um, I want that little girl to grow up real, thinking that braille's just the same as print, right? Yeah. You know, in her little, in her little mind, she's seeing Braille on a page just as often as she sees print. Uh. You know, and she's always known my guide dog Ogden, and um, you know, she loves him. And and you know, I, I'm I'm really excited about watching her grow up. You know, knowing these things. You know. Yeah, I love that. Like I was, I've said on the show recently, I was a sensitivity, authenticity reader consultant for a kids book that came out. Um, with Kids Can Press in Toronto. And that one, you know, it's about a little blind girl exploring her city, but they made it accessible and it's got Braille. And and so I just, I I, I love that you gave that to um, that little girl. And, and I want these books to be in school libraries, to be in, in community libraries. And Braille just needs to be more normalized. We're not expecting everybody to need to learn it, uh, but it, but it's, 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 we want it to be a little more, um, commonly seen than it is not such this wow what is this people thinking it's like an entirely different language or something or you know there's just so many misconceptions and it's just because it's not out there and and, and, uh, readily available for people to just kind of see normalized in, in, uh, in society but I do like that you got a, you got a Kirkus uh, uh, Kirkus um, mentioned you in a, in a list they say eight YA, uh, YA books um, that could change your mind uh, yes. I, I, you know, what do you think that title is sort of saying? Like it has a list of some interesting topics, um, the Me Too movement and abortion and a lot of things that are what we're dealing with in society, a lot of things we don't want to talk about. Um, you know, when there's a, a gay couple in a, in a storyline in a book, uh, you know, these things that are more common now. But um, to get a mention in a, in a list like this, what do you think that? I know I was I was I was super duper high for a couple of days after that one. Yeah, because <laughs> because yeah. that's what I mean. That's what we all want to do, right? We we want we want to change people's minds or their attitudes about about blindness and disability in general, right? Mm-hmm. It's just another way of being in the world. It's not the most ideal way because the world isn't built for us, but. Um, but it, it's manageable. I um, One of the things I mentioned in the book too was, um, I'm a real fan of Malcolm Gladwell. He's a, a writer mm-hmm. and um, he came up with this 10,000 hour rule concept where if you practice something for 10,000 hours, you can't help but be good at it. And he, he, he mentioned groups like the Beatles and everything, how they practiced, you know, their their art for for so many hours and everybody thinks they just popped on the scene but they were practicing you know yeah nobody sees the work that goes into things generally you just see the end result that's right and i mean i that's what i tell people about being blind like i've been blind for way more than ten thousand hours (laughs) i better be good at it by now and that's what i tell people i'm good at being blind yeah like when they say oh you do well it's like well of course i do i'm good at it you know, I've strategized and practiced and, you know, I have Braille, I have, you know, screen reading, I have my home adapted for it, you know, um, and I'm good at it. 
Yeah. yeah so, you know, most nice. people wouldn't even notice. And it's not something people say a lot about a disability is, but I'm good at it, right? Mm. So... Yeah, and I think that that brings up a whole other topic, which I'd like to get into a little bit here, just to have, uh, get a, a bit of your opinion on it. But just want a quick mention again for our listeners: we're speaking with Hannah Levitt, or you also go by Hannah Laura Levitt, and right. you can find your online at hannahlauralevitt.com. And your book, "The Disability Experience: Working Towards Belonging," um, published through Orca Book publishers is uh, is available online i'm sure people can find it through amazon it's available in paperback and i think um well i was gonna say i i would i don't go to in-person bookstores these days really but the next time i'm in one i want to look it up because i mean even knowing you the little i do it's it'll be exciting to anytime to see anybody i know have a book on the shelves in a bookstore like you say certain people just come across it across the country um browsing in a bookstore and so that's it's always exciting as, as someone who's a writer myself but who just loves books uh you know I'll keep an eye on my friend. I am. I know a friend of mine in Guelph, Susan, uh, she uh, texted me. She was, it happened to be out at a bookstore and saw my book there and, and was sort of jumping up and down and telling the store people that, that she knew, knew me. (laughs) (laughs) And and she texted me to say, your book's in Guelph. And it's like, okay, cool. (laughs) So. Awesome. But what I would, I really wanted to touch on was you talked about, you know, good at, you're good at being blind or you're, I forget how you worded it now. Um, That's exactly how I worded it. I'm good at it. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So what I want to talk about now, and I just want to kind of get your overall feeling on this. So I guess we talked about you, or you mentioned that you are a Braille user and, and, um, you know, obviously you've, you've learned those skills, but I want to kind of talk a little bit about how, how you did learn those and what the support was like. And then just your overall thoughts on, so the last five years we got involved here with the Canadian Federation of the Blind, which ties into the National Federation of the Blind in the U.S. and similar beliefs there. And it's it, it's been a great, interesting experience, but I sometimes, I don't, there's, I question a lot of it because I do feel like Canada is such a different country. And I think, you know, they it's often talked about, oh, the services are so much better in the U.S. And I, I think maybe part of that's due to the fact that they're just, there's also a much larger population, so there's just more need for it. Um, but it's also a cultural thing. But I also think Canada, we can't really replicate exactly what they do there because we're just a different country, and I think culturally we are different. So I just wanted to know kind of your thoughts on developing these these skills here in Canada and what needs to be done. I don't know, just being an adult now and out of school, I don't even know what it's like now for, like, how does anyone become a, a Braille teacher and how many are there in Canada and just overall situation in Canada, how do you think it is now? How could it improve? And do you have any thoughts on kind of what we could do? I mean, the other issue being there's just so many different, there's the Canadian Federation of the Blind, the Canadian Council of the Blind, the CNIB, the Alliance for the Equality of Blind Canadians. There's so many, which of course we want options, but sometimes it's like we're already divided as is. And then we have all these different organizations. How are we ever going to kind of get something done, done as one? That's that's a really common um, problem, and it, it's a really, you know, it's a real barrier t- for people to want to get involved because they don't know where to start. And um, all those organizations are great. I mean, I'm aware of them all. I've been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not um, personally. I'm not. Um, I guess I'm. I'm more of a lone a loner in my work, and I I don't. I don't function well in meetings. I don't like sitting in meetings and, you know, doing Robert's rules and all, you know, just knowing all this whole other culture of meetings and politics. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't understand all that. And I honestly, I don't want to learn it. I don't. And um, I, I, my approach is a very personal and very individual one is that business of, you know, if, if I can meet one person a day and talk to them and just leave them, with a brighter idea of what it means to be disabled in the community here. You know, I mean, people at my grocery store, you know, doctors, people, you know, every, anybody that I deal with, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I talk to them about vision loss, you know, and I'm, I'm very open with them. So, I mean, I'm more of an, uh, I take more of an individual approach to all of that. So, I mean, I think you have to know yourself. I think that's a good way, place to start. I mean, if you're a joiner and, and you like groups and you like working on teams, that's that's probably where you need to start. But I, you, I think you're right. The population is very diverse here. You, you know, the, the, the spread of blind people across Canada is, you know, it's pretty hard to, to bring us all together. It's so, it's so large and we're so scattered. Um, 
I don't know, when it comes to blindness skills, I guess kids in, in, in elementary schools, that's their first introduction to actually learning about blindness and, and Braille and everything. I don't, um, you know, the whole business of do you teach a child Braille has been gone through so many iterations over the years. It's hard to, I don't, I don't know what's right or wrong, right? I, I can't, I can't say, but for me, learning Braille was a real godsend and an absolute must. I am not a, a I'm not a, a, a fast reader of Braille. Like I wouldn't read a Braille book. Mm-hmm. I'm not that fast. But everything else is in Braille. Everything else in my life is in Braille. You know, my all my financial information, you know, credit card numbers, bank, you know, all that stuff is in Braille at a binder in my desk. You know, my Brailler is always loaded with paper. It sits just underneath the drawer in my desk here on the floor. And uh, it's just always ready to go. Mm-hmm. And I just, I can, you know, lots of things are labeled with Braille. I just, I think one, I think, you know, stereotypes have really impacted what we believe about ourselves and our abilities. And I think one of the big things, you know, we talk about kids in education, but, you know, the biggest demographic of blind people is uh, seniors, mostly these days because of macular degeneration. And I mean, the biggest myth about seniors is they can't read Braille. They're too old. They, you know, it's too hard for them. And that's been something that I mean, I've known all my life is, yeah, seniors don't take Braille up. You know, they don't want to learn Braille. They don't they don't feel capable of it. I think they've probably learned, heard that somewhere along the line, too. And, Many and times, I know yeah. Braille, yeah, Braille Literacy Canada, um, there's a, I don't know much about her, but her name's Natalie, the new uh, mm-hmm. or executive person of uh, Braille Literacy Canada. And I understand she's come up with some amazing uh, promotions around uh, learning Braille for seniors. So I think that like that's a huge demographic of blind people, you know, that uh, it would be great to to get to, you know, and, and dispense with those old beliefs about, you know, seniors can't learn Braille, right? Mm-hmm. So, no, we had we had yeah. her and uh, Jen Golden, another, um, I think, past president um, on Outlook. Um, yeah, it was over, it's hard over to keep track of time ago. now, but yeah. I think it was the beginning of 2021. But. but yeah, Braille Literacy Canada is great. I'm glad that Canada has that. Um, I did come across online um the other day so um holman was his name he was a a traveler in the 18 early 1800s who was blind and uh so nowadays they have this every year blind people can submit an idea a project um you know they submit a, a very brief video and um then they pick winners and they fund their idea and I saw your video from a couple of years back there in the height of the pandemic. Oh my pan- gosh, I was going to say, oh, I applied for that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, yeah. I love what you're doing with Schools for the Blind, but also in that video you mentioned at that time you were hoping to, you know, travel around and see about different blindness-related things in different places and, and go to places that have meaning. And one of them you mentioned was um, Louis Braille's Village. And that's one that's been on my bucket list for years. And I hope to get there in this decade because it's kind of 200 years since Braille kind of... You know, he came up with it at um, yes. in the school he was at in, in Paris, and um, I would love to to visit that village. And I think of it almost as he's my ancestor, right? Not related um, in a different continent, a different country, spoke a different language, but um, I I feel like I really need to make a pilgrimage almost so there. And I I don't know what you know that might bring in, bring up if I do ever, but I hope to. And I I always sometimes like trying to gather a group of us to go some somehow. And I just I love that that came up as as part of your video that time. It was, it was great. Yeah, I, I was, uh, yeah, I, that, that I, I made it to the finals with that application, but uh-huh. because, because COVID hit and my, my uh, application was all about traveling to all Bad these different timing. places, because yeah. basically what I was proposing was like a blindest pilgrimage, yeah. you know, to go to all the places that, that have been, you know, key or key events have taken place in our history. And, and definitely it started with Louis Braille. I actually just on the weekend finished reading a biography of his. And I mean, I, I mean, I knew all about him and stuff, but it was mm-hmm. more detailed about him personally. And and um, I don't know if you ever heard this about him, but um, he, so he died um, after uh, quite a lengthy illness. And when he died, they um, they buried him in Couvray, which is his hometown. Yeah. And, and like a hundred years after that, by the time, France finally recognized him as being this 
amazing, you know, innovative person. Um, they actually uh, dug up his grave and they moved him to the Pantheon in Paris, France, where all kinds of isn't like Victor amazingly- Hugo buried there, and yes, yeah, all these amazing, you know, brilliant people are buried there. So Louis Braille is actually in the Pantheon in Paris, you know, taking taking a very prominent place amongst uh, you know all these other historically significant people. Mm-hmm. But the thing that you don't hear about very often, I heard about it once before, and it was in this book, is that. Um, you know, some religions really value the, the actual physical part of the human body or whatever. Yeah. And so they they took, they, they his body is in the Pantheon, but in this memorial that they have in Couvray, his hands are in there. Yeah, I think I read it was either one or the other. I couldn't remember if maybe his hands were in the Pantheon and he was still left in Couvray. But yeah, that is, that's, <laughs> Of course, his hands, you know, tactile, braille, that, that I guess yes. that makes sense. But to think I of know, that. It was, wow. it was just a little st- uh, startling to read that at the first time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we we know things about him that I thought for years that that I heard of the tool that he he got a hold of in his father's uh, horse um, bridle shop or was it harness? Yes, it's, he had a saddlery. Yeah, saddlery. Yeah. yeah, and like we thought for years, it was this tool called an awl. All yeah, all a w a w l, and then yeah, they revealed that uh, it actually was another tool, like a little round knife, like carved curved knife. Um, but yeah, he <laughs> he he wanted to do what his father was doing. He was like three or something, and he picked it up yeah. and he you know got it in his one eye, which the infection back then it spread to his other eye. And but yeah, like yeah. you learn things that you. So history is always changing. That's what I history is so interesting. Yeah, to me nah. that can do that. And that's why it's so important what 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 you've been do what you're doing here, Hannah Levitt. It's just mm-hmm. we got to be we have to be really you know accounting this history and and having Curious. records about it because like you say when you when you do research now and I think Carrie after we had uh, the blind history lady on from the U S we were like okay you know she didn't have too much info on Canadian history really obviously other than and, the, yeah other than the 1917 explosion which you know most people in North America have heard right, of you hear of that, right. that yeah. but after having her on it was kind of like what about Canadians history and I know we did a we did do an episode I know we probably don't remember it too well it was a while ago but we did one on Canadian history and we tried to do some research but everything was so scattered and you know there's this the the, the schools in in Montreal and Quebec and that's another thing in Canada I think just being a different yeah, we language, feel we feel so separate. Yeah. Feels separate, so you almost wonder. And things, it's just the approach differently is there for for funding in in uh, Quebec than it is in other provinces for for blindness related stuff, from what I understand. And there's just so many differences. So, documenting all of this stuff, I think, is is so important. Um, so I just I really appreciate the work the work that you're doing. Thanks a bunch. I mean, like I say, it's almost really part of my personal journey as well. And in, in kind of uh, you know when you grow up with a disability, you, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I grew up not feeling quite as worthy as as my sighted counterparts, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and um, so it's kind of, you know, my sort of psychological journey too, to, to uh, you know, understanding where I came from as a disabled person and why mm-hmm. I feel, you know, why I assume these attitudes, you know, like I inherited them almost, you know, um, just by being disabled and, you know, I want to dispel them from my life too, right? Yeah. So. I mean, I've been blind all my life, but it's, it's changed over the years. And I feel like I'm dealing with a lot of what you say there now as an adult, now that I'm nearly almost totally blind. And I went from, you know, this to, it was low vision as a kid and now I'm nearly totally blind. And so I'm really dealing with a lot of those feelings now. And I, you know, I would <laughs> wish that I could maybe work through them as a child and I'd be past it, but like life journeys just don't work that way. And so it's great to hear about what, what, what yours has been and what it is and where you're going with it. And whether it's schools for the blind or, or these pilgrimages to, you know, Couvray or, or Perkins school for the blind in, in, yeah. in Massachusetts, wherever it is, it, you know, it's just, it's important stuff. And it's great to talk to someone like you who's so curious about it all and, and we could talk for have, hours with you because it's so much. Do I have time to tell you another story? I don't know what. How yeah, time we, we is. can we can go over a few minutes. It's, it's not too strict. That's here, the so. okay. nice thing about. Um, yeah. One of uh, there's an author in the United States who's visually impaired. Her name is Georgina Kleeg, K L E E G E. Yeah, I actually just read and one of her books recently. Yeah, yeah. There, she wrote a great book called uh, "Blind Rage: Letters to Helen yeah, Keller." Yeah, that's the one I read. Yeah. Yeah, and she did a tremendous amount of research on Helen Keller because she's kind of like me. She's a little bit ambivalent about all the blindness legends and, you know, yeah. 
you know, you don't always want to have Helen Keller held up to you, and you know, because it's just she's just not as relevant. Yeah, we're trying to find some today. some some other some other people to be talked about, not just her. Obviously, she's an important yeah. Historic but she, figure, but. she told us yeah in in the Blind Rage book, she told a great story about because she did an amazing amount of research for the book, and she she went to Helen Keller's house. And it's it's kind of a, a little museum now, and and they have some summertime tours through it, and so she and her husband went on this tour, and and I mean they were just so all old fashioned about the whole blindest thing. It's like oh, there's the organ that Helen, you know, that was in Helen's house and that she grew up with. Isn't it terrible that she never heard heard that music, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's the kind of tour they were doing. And then they go out to the backyard where the the you know the infamous well is. And, you know, and, 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 and they do every night in the summertime, they do a performance of the miracle worker. And, and in my brain, I'm going, no wonder attitudes never change if they're perpetuating that old story, like night after night. And, W-A-T-E-R, and, water, which yeah, was an always absurd- call it, Great moment. Yeah, I always call it the Wawa moment. No disrespect, yeah. Helen, but yeah, you know, perpetuating that Wawa moment. And, and, and I mean, Helen was deaf blind. I mean, she, she, you know, she had a complex, you know, more complex disability. Yet, I mean, we always wonder why everybody associates deafness and blindness. It's because of that. But, yeah. you know, blind people aren't, sometimes they're deaf, but most of the time they're not. And that's yeah. why it's so important to cover history because like we say, we, we, we nobody likes change and people get so confident, well, at least most people don't love change all the time. And we get so used to these these legends and things that have been told, but really there's always more b- beneath the surface if we dig a bit deeper. And that's why it's so important we, we, we uh, continue to write this stuff from different perspectives and get different uh, details coming out depending who's writing it because it's there's so much out there and I think sometimes it's overwhelming and we don't always know about it all, so... Just think it's so important, and uh, thanks so much today for uh, to Hannah Levitt for coming on Outlook. You can find her online, hannahlaurelevitt.com, or you look up the book for sure, The Disability Experience, Working Towards Belonging. I thought I would just quick finish, actually, Hannah. I mean, you can quickly mention, too, if there's anything else we didn't mention you'd like to have on air. Of course, Carrie, the, the Triple Vision podcast. Everyone should also look that up. We didn't talk about that in as much detail today as maybe we wanted to, but we've talked about it on the show a bunch already, and it's... Mm-hmm. Definitely got a lot of great info, so definitely check it out. Um, but I thought I would just mention on your website you have you have a a blog, and uh, I think maybe it kind of started that around the book. So I haven't I don't, haven't seen an update on there in a while. But it's called the Ventana Blog, and I thought just with spring coming along and we've talked all these serious issues, we talk about maybe one of your hobbies. And you wrote an article on there called "Green Thumb Gone Blind," and I just like this first <laughs> sentence that you write where it says. Fortunately for we low vision and blind gardeners, Mother Nature and her fruits and vegetables are non-discriminating. And that's just the start of the article, so I think people should check it out. But yeah, well, gosh, you know, that's a that's uh, that should make anybody want to read it. On yeah, so I just thought maybe I know talk briefly I'm about that you mentioned. Yeah, I'm embarrassed you mentioned the blog because I've been so busy with podcasts and and this other book and, and promotions. Well, and yeah, things. you do a lot of it your own on your own, and there's so much. Yeah, we, as we know, and you talked earlier about the individual experience. It's this. I think, you know, the last five years being involved with the Canadian Federation of the Blind, it's been a great learning experience, but I'm kind of stepping back a bit because it, it is hard to, and it's not that I don't want to, but it's, I just find it is so hard to really organize and work. And some people thrive in those situations, but I think I get the feeling overall in the blindness community with a lot of younger people too, that people want to kind of do th- things on their own and don't really want to always work in a big organization or group and I don't know I kind of got right. off tangent there there's so much so much to talk about yeah but. Brian I was like you want to talk about gardening well I just thought it's a nice way to end after all this kind of serious stuff but uh, yeah no definitely that's a great title there um, but yeah if you want to tell us about what maybe what's co- what comes in that article or what that is what, what gardening is to, yeah for what you. it is for you um, it's it's a way to be in the world you know like to be equal in the world. I mean, I, I don't know, plants are very forgiving. You know, they just want you to do your best. And I tell them that when I plant them, it's like, hey, you know, I've done my part. I water you. I planted you. It's up to you to live from here, right? I love you, but you're on your own, basically, right? <laughs> and, but I, I just, um, I love the tactile experience of it. Um, you know, touching the blooms and smelling them. I mean, I have, over the years, I've, I've changed up uh, shrubbery and stuff around the yard so that I have scented 
bushes and things now. So, I mean, I have some Daphne bushes that are blooming now and they're just such a beautiful, sweet fragrance. And I, so, I mean, there's this, I guess it's a real, it's a really sensory uh, experience for me that I don't get in the real world. Like in the real world, I'm always negotiating uh, challenges and everything, but in the gardening world, I just get to be there and discover and, and, and use all my senses. So it's, it's, it's kind of an, it's a nice forgiving kind of place to be. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's what definitely what it is for a lot of people. It, it's a connecting back to the earth and there's just so much to gain from smelling it and feeling the earth and uh, just being out in it and, you know, helping things grow and then watching them grow and do it themselves, um, observing and... Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's a perfect topic yeah, it's for me. Yeah, it is another little way to get confidence. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't do it for that reason, but it's sort of something that comes along anyways. Right. You know, once you do something, you get a little more confident at it. And and it's a way to talk. It's another topic to engage with other people. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're at the garden center and, you know, they're all excited that I'm gardening. And, and you know, it's, it's again, it's it's a, a simple sort of way in and, and to talk about you know, the things you can do, even though you've got a disability, right? So. Yeah. And I think that's why I like to, I like to bring it up because it's something that our mom always did growing up. We lived in the country. We had a big garden out, th- out there, but you know, not being able to see, it's not something I ever fully got into, but it's something I would like to get into someday. And I don't talk to tons of blind gardeners. Of course, it's something we can, we can obviously do. And, and there's like most things. And like you say, it's so many senses are involved in, in gardening. It's um, so I think, but I think you'd still be some people out there that would be kind of like, what, how do you, how could you do that if you're blind? So all of these things that I think uh, just need to be talked about more. And we could obviously talk about gardening in more detail on a future show, but um, yeah. yeah, you just start small and work from there. I mean, we, we lived in an apart in, in apartments in Vancouver and had balconies. So mm-hmm. you gardened in pots, right? And right. Uh, so you learn in small spaces and, and you just sort of graduate from there. I have way too big a yard now, but, um, but no, it's, again, it's, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's a peaceful place to kind of go out and, and kind of meditate a little bit and, you know, relax. And, and my dog loves it. My guide dog loves it because it means that he can keep bringing his Frisbee over to me while I'm trying to work and I throw it for him. Right. So (laughs) love it. It it works for him too. Love it. And we didn't even get into talking much about your guide dog experience. Brian and I each have had one in our lives and you know, there's like Brian said so much we could talk about. We'd love uh, to have you on again someday to to talk more. I'd I'd love it too. Yeah. Congrats. Good. You know, congratulations to you both for doing what you do as well. Yeah, Thank thanks you. Thanks so much. We really appreciate it and everything you do as well. Everyone should definitely go look up Hannah Levitt and the disability experience working towards belonging. Definitely an important book for everyone to read. So yeah, thanks again and uh, we'll see everyone next week. Thank you, Hannah. Send us an email. Outlook on Radio Western at gmail.com Find us on Twitter at Outlook CFB and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.